1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: It's nation building. That is what we're trying to do here. And that's what we've been trying to do for the past year and a half. And that's really realistically what we've been trying to do for the past 30 years of our independence. I mean, we're seeing really through our work at Shadows firsthand and experiment in 21st century nation building and what that means because Ukraine finally got the opportunity to have its own voice, have its own country and have control over its narrative Um, in 1991, after centuries of repressions. And that posed this question of, okay, now that you have full control, what is Ukraine and what does that mean? And for us growing up as the first independent generation, that question falls upon us. And so that's really what me and my team and my friends are trying to do at Shadows is This experiment in building a nation in 2022.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast, May 4th, 2022. Katarina Bukatsky was, until a couple of months ago, a student at Stanford University. For the past couple of years, she has run the Shadows Project an online forum devoted to preservation of Ukrainian cultural heritage. A couple of months ago, she took a leave to go to Poland where she has been shuttling protective equipment into Ukraine to help museums preserve artifacts. She joined me from Krakow in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk about the Shadows Project, about preservation of artifacts in the middle of the war in Ukraine and about what it means to be a Ukrainian nationalist as a young person in 2022. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 4th, Katerina Bukatsky on The Shadows Project. So I want to start with who you are and your own story. You are Ukrainian, although one would never know it from listening to you speak in English. You're... (laughs) Currently in Poland, is that right?
2: Yeah, I'm currently in Krakow. I've been here for about two months, but I've been going in and out of Ukraine while I've been in Poland.
0: And you are, in your other life, an undergraduate at Stanford. Is that right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, two months ago, I was an undergrad at Stanford studying international relations and international security. feels like a very long time ago, but if my mom's listening to this, I will be back and I will graduate someday.
0: All right, so let's unpack that uh, very complicated story. How does one go from being a Ukrainian uh, student to being a Stanford undergrad to being in Krakow going in and out of Ukraine? Well,
2: I guess with these kinds of stories, like with a lot of Ukrainians, my story started in 2014, I was living in Kiev at the time with my family, and in 2013, in November, the Revolution of Dignity started in Kiev, so I was there with my family when that broke out, and we participated in that revolution. And
0: Before you go on, what do you mean you participated in that revolution? How old were you, and what was you and your family's role in it?
2: I was, well, actually, I turned 13 during the revolution, celebrated my 13th birthday on the day of the Million Man March, December 1st, 2013. So the night before, overnight, um, there had been students protesting on Maidan for uh, about a week or two at that point, I think, protesting that our president, Viktor Yanukovych, did not sign the agreement with the European Union. And the night before my birthday, December first, the riot police of Ukraine went to the square and broke out the broke up the protests and beat the protesters, including a lot of women and young students that were there. And the next morning we woke up as a nation and saw that this had happened and realized the threat on our democracy. And so that day was the Million Man March when over a million people came out to show support for what had previously been a relatively small protest, but grew into something so much bigger because of the government's response to it. And so that was my 13th birthday. I woke up that morning to the news of the protesters having been beaten in the square. It became a day so much bigger than me, I guess. And that was kind of the day that I realized that I myself, was participating in something so much bigger. I mean, it's really hard to have a personal life and to, when your country is going through something so large. And I think that day forward, like the lines between my personal life and my life as a Ukrainian kind of were forever blurred. And so after that, you know, the protests really started escalating and more and more people went out. And so me and my family went out into the square and protested several times um, during the Revolution of Dignity. I know my parents were a lot more involved in it than I was because I was only 13 at the time, but I remember making posters and going out into the square, and that was kind of my first involvement in one of our Ukrainian revolutions. And that was, yeah, I was 13 years old at that time, so that's that's what I was doing.
0: So when did you come to the States? And let, before we before we go back to how you ended up back there two months ago, Uh, When did you come here and what was your life until two months ago?
2: So after the Revolution of Dignity, when Putin annexed Crimea and started a war in eastern Ukraine, that was a time where there was a lot of uncertainty in the country of whether he was going to continue a full-scale push. And my family very much in the heat of the moment, made the decision to move to the U.S. that summer. So summer of 2014, I moved to Boston with my mom and my brother. My dad stayed in Ukraine. He was living in Mykolaiv at the time, which is in southern Ukraine. Um, it's a city that's seen heavy fighting. It's been involved very deeply in the current war. And so at the time, you know, we, we made the decision to pick up and go to the U.S. And so I completed my high school years in Boston applied to Stanford, went to Stanford and had been doing my undergrad for the past three years at Stanford until the new full-scale invasion broke out. And so on February 24th, well, actually almost, you know, a week or two before February 24th, I had been calling my mom asking her if I could go to Kiev. And um, because I wanted to see it one last time, I really wanted to be there. And, um, my mom was saying no, that that doesn't make sense. And actually I had kind of tried to convince her to let me go to Kiev over spring break this year, which was in March of this year. And she said, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense for you to buy tickets to go to Kiev over spring break. Like if something's going to happen, then you're not going to be able to get your trip anyways, which she was right. And so the day that the full-scale invasion happened, I called her already just asking her to let me, let me go because, I mean, Kiev is a city that to me is is so personal. It's really where I consider my home to be, where, where my heart is. I mean, I could go on and on describing how much the city means to me. And so the first day that the war started, I called her just begging her to let me see Kiev, let me go back one last time. And she said, no, it didn't really make sense. I'm making a rash decision. But I just, I knew it's what I needed to do, that I needed to get as close as I could. And I think my mom knows that. I think that she knows um, that she raised someone that's going to do what she believes is right and is going to chase after that no matter what. And so a few days later, I called her again saying, Just to let you know, I'm going to go to Poland. I have some friends there. We're going to try and do some work. And I think that my mom knew that there wasn't really much that she could do to stop me because of how much this means to me. And so we had another conversation. I just gave her a heads up that I was going. And she said, Okay, well, good luck. And yeah, so I went about a week after the war started. I came to Krakow, met up with some of my friends, some that had fled Ukraine, some had, that had come to Krakow after the war. And we got together and just tried to start figuring out you know, what our next steps are and how we can best contribute to help Ukraine achieve victory. And I've been here ever since.
0: All right. So I want to come to your current activities momentarily, but you have been active. Uh, it wasn't like you were a kind of wallflower college student uh, who was uninvolved in stuff prior to February. You have run, I'm not sure if it's an organization or a group yeah. or a website. I'm not sure quite how to, it's it's sort of a feed uh, called the mm-hmm. Shadows Project uh, for the last couple of years. Let's start with that. Uh, tell us about Uh, what it is and what the nature of your pre-February political Mm -hmm. activity has been.
2: Yeah. So excitingly enough, actually, just a few days ago, we became officially registered. So I can now say that the Shadows Project is an official NGO. It started in January of 2021. So a year and a half ago now. The story of the Shadows Project kind of started as a process of my own self-discovery. I did not know exactly what it was going to turn into when I started The Shadows Journey, but I would say that it started in Kyiv September of 2020 when I went back to visit during um, the pandemic and I spent a time, I spent a month in Kyiv on my own. It was the first time that I had been back for a year. And I spent a lot of time just reflecting on what it means for me to be in Kiev and what my Ukrainian identity has meant for me up until that point. Because I think that moving away from Ukraine at such a time in 2014, it was very hectic. And I was moving to America that, you know, it was a big culture shock. And I was starting a completely new life. And I didn't have the proper time to reflect on my experience in Ukraine. And so when I came back during the pandemic, it kind of was a moment of. Quiet, where I could finally be in Ukraine and really understand what my upbringing there meant to me and what it means to me as my home. And I started realizing that I really didn't understand that much about it at all and I would go around Kiev in September and learn all of these things about the cities that I had grown up in, the streets that I had walked past every day during my childhood, the buildings that I had seen millions of times before and realize that I didn't actually know who lived in these buildings, who walked these streets and the history that they held. And a large part of that, due to the repressions and erasures of Ukrainian history that had been going on for centuries, and especially during the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union deliberately tried to take away these Ukrainian stories from us by, you know, hiding the great Ukrainian poets, erasing the stories of the great Ukrainian artists and dissidents and creatives and philosophers. And so that took a lot away from me and my experience as a Ukrainian, because it means that a lot of the stories of my ancestors, I don't don't even realize are all around me, and I don't even realize how their stories shape my own life. And I came to this eureka moment in September when I realized that Kyiv had so much, and Ukraine as a whole had so much to offer that was underground or in the shadows, if you will. And so um, I really wanted to kind of start something that could bring that narrative out to the forefront and that could allow, especially young Ukrainians that are still in the formation of kind of developing their identity agency to decide, okay, these are our stories. These are our ancestors that came before us. Like, what does that mean for us? What is our history? What is our culture? And how is that going to shape the new Ukrainian identity? And so I kind of just wanted to do something, but I didn't know exactly what. And so I... Messaged two of my friends that were Ukrainian that I knew were a little bit involved in Ukrainian culture. And I messaged them saying, You know, can we get on a call? I kind of just want to do something. And they said, Sure. So I got on a call with them and I said, I have this feeling. I just, I really want to do something to bring Ukrainian historical memory to the forefront and allow us agency and to kind of let us shape our narrative. And even with the most vague idea ever, they really liked it. And they told me that they actually had been feeling a lot of the same things. They said that, you know, they're also in this process of self-discovery and trying to figure out what their Ukrainian identity means. And like, they really wanted to be involved in the formation of that as well. And so it really did come at a perfect time. And I think it validated this idea that we, as the first generation of Ukrainians growing up in an independent Ukraine, really need to cement what our identity means. And a lot of us Ukrainians, the new independent generation are just starting to turn into adults. You know, I just turned 21 and all of my friends as well. And so we're just trying to understand that, which is why I think for most people that I reached out to when starting the Shadows Project, they were very much in that same place in their lives of self-discovery and self-reflection of their Ukrainian identity, which is why I think it flourished so quickly. And we built up a team so quick because a lot of people were really looking for a place to unravel those narratives. And so In January of 2021, we kind of launched it officially as a Ukrainian cultural community that does research on Ukrainian history, culture, and makes it relevant and modern and makes it contemporary for young Ukrainians that we can kind of continue this cultural continuity because what Russian imperialism has tried to do for centuries is disrupt the cultural continuity of Ukraine. You know, they want you to believe that Ukraine didn't exist, that it was a part of the Russian empire, and then it was a part of the Soviet Union. They don't want there to be a narrative that Ukraine has always been Ukraine. And so we've been doing all kinds of things like posts, research, collaborations with cultural institutions to create a continuity and to allow young Ukrainians their voice and understand what that means for them. And so... I had been already working on this for a while, and when Putin delivered his address declaring war in Ukraine and stated that Ukraine was created in 1918 and it was a fake nation, that kind of proved to us the importance of this historical continuity and the importance of creating this narrative. And it was something that we had already known was so important before, but it had never been so clear as to why historical memory is a threat to Ukraine until Putin actually declared war on that basis. And so... I think that you know me picking up and leaving was very much something that I knew I had to do because it was something I had already been working on for a year and a half now, and no there has not been a time where the threat has been so prevalent to our history and our memory, and so I immediately knew that I wanted to go back and try and see what the role of shadows would be in this current conflict
0: so one of the things that's I think really interesting in the current discussion is a a kind of confusion, particularly in the West, about what constitutes the substance of Ukrainian nationhood. So there's a confusion about sort of Russophone Ukrainians versus Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians. There's a a kind of question about whether Ukrainian nationhood if you know sort of fits under a, a kind of civic model of your sort of Ukrainian if you live there and you identify as Ukrainian or or a kind of more ethno-nationalist model. When you think about Ukrainian culture and history as you describe it, what is your concept of what it means to be a Ukrainian as opposed to a Pole, a Romanian, a Russian. Is it principally a landmass? Is it principally a civic identification? Is it principally an ethnicity and uh, and 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 language grouping? What is the content of the identity?
2: It's a very interesting question, and it's something that we discuss at length amongst my friends and at Shadows and in Ukraine a lot, and generally. I think that the foundation of the Ukrainian nation is this choice. I think it all rests upon choice. And something that we talk a lot about at Shadows is that being Ukrainian is something that people buy into and pe- something that people actively choose to be. And it's a philosophy that you subscribe to. And it doesn't matter what language you speak or where you're from necessarily ethnically or geographically. It really is kind of a philosophy. And the reason that we say this is because throughout so much of Ukrainian history, Ukraine has not been, quote unquote, Ukraine. It has been the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, or it has been a part of the Russian Empire. You know, Ukraine is simply Ukraine, was founded in 1991. And before that, you know, we didn't have this political nation that we could subscribe to. And yet still, people consider themselves Ukrainian. You can find writings from the times of the Russian empire, and people are still saying, I am a Ukrainian. And Ukrainians have always considered themselves this people, even if they haven't had the political title to go along with it. And that's because it's very basis. It's this choice of who you want to be, and it's a choice of being free, and it's a choice of being autonomous. And that's the basis of the Ukrainian nation. From the times of the Kazakh Hetmanate when Know Ukraine was the first country to have a democratic constitution in Europe, and it does precede France's democratic constitution, which not a lot of people know. But we kind of have always had this idea of being democratic, being autonomous, being free, being fighters. And during a lot of different times in our history, even when it was not the easy choice, Ukrainians still chose to be that and still chose to retain that identity and you can find several numerous examples of different points in history at which ukrainian cultural figures writers artists all of these very important people that had faced severe repression during the russian empire soviet union when it would have been so easy for them to say you know i'm a citizen of the russian empire i am russian and escaped any kind of consequences they still chose to be defiant and say no i am ukrainian and it made their lives so much harder because of it, but they weren't necessarily afraid of that because it's something that you carry with you in your values. And it's something that people have always understood, even if politically Ukraine has not existed. And that's something that I think is so beautiful about the Ukrainian nation and really so unique because this concept of Ukrainian stems back centuries before you could argue that Ukraine in a political context existed. And it's something that rests on the notion of. This community of people that like to fight for what they believe in. And I think that fighting for what you believe in and not taking anything less than what you think you deserve is something that you see throughout Ukrainian history. And it's a core basis of the Ukrainian philosophy from all of our revolutions throughout the centuries to 2004 Orange Revolution, 2014 Revolution of Dignity, to today's war against Russia. Ukrainians are very proud of the values that they hold. And they're proud to say that those values are Ukrainian and they're willing to fight for them and defend themselves. And I think that that makes us especially distinctly different from Russians, and which is important to say in the current context because of this myth of a common people. I mean, I think that that's something that's so different, whereas in Ukraine, we've consistently been fighting for democracy and for freedom, even when the odds have been against us. In Russia, you do not see the same kind of philosophical defiance and you don't see the same kind of resistance and determination to have a free nation i mean russia's lived under autocracies for centuries and there arguably has never been a true democratic revolution in russia and i would argue that even the 1917 bolshevik revolution was not a true democratic revolution and so i do think that it's fundamentally different what the people believe in and ukraine ukraine is about being a fighter that's
1: that's what i would say J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Where is the linguistic component of this? So, you know, we have this broad understanding over a long period of time that has now been revealed to be largely nonsense, that there are these Eastern Ukrainian areas that are... Uh, you know, primarily Russophone and primarily sort of identify with Russia, which turns out not to be true. Where does the sort of Russophone eastern parts of Ukraine fit into this, this vision that you describe?
2: Well, first, when when thinking about the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine, you have to remember that this is not necessarily something that they do By choice. I mean, the russification of Ukraine is a process that's been happening since the value of circular in, you know, the times of the Russian empire, when the Russian authorities forcefully ensured that Ukrainians could not speak their own language. And so this is due to centuries of colonialism that we see so many Russian speaking Ukrainians today. It's not something that is a choice that Russian-speaking Ukrainians are buying into the Russian nation, that it's, you know, their political defiance against Ukraine. I mean, I come from a Russian-speaking family. So my family's from Odessa in southern Ukraine. It's one of the most Russian cities in Ukraine, quote-unquote, because it was founded by Catherine the Great, and it was a very big city in the Russian Empire, so very russified. And I grew up speaking Russian, come from a Russian-speaking family, First of all, I have never felt that that affected my identity nor have I ever felt discriminated against if anyone still thinks that that narrative even exists. I mean, discrimination against Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but I I think that, you know, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians are a critical part of our nation and they do reflect a lot of our nation's history and I don't think that in Ukraine there's any kind of sentiment that a Russian-speaking Ukrainian does not belong here. I think it's all about, I think it's all about what the Russian speaking Ukrainians are willing to contribute to the development of the Ukrainian nation. Now, if a Russian speaking, I have had experiences with Russian speaking Ukrainians that, you know, are very patriotic and are willing to contribute to the development of Ukraine and its identity and are still Russian speaking. I think that the relationship with Russophone Ukrainians and Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians is complicated and tense and has has been complicated for a lot of our history. But at the same time, you know, the reason that there are so many Russian-speaking Ukrainians is because of centuries of colonialism and deliberate erasure of the Ukrainian language. And it's not a reflection of the Russian-speaking Ukrainians necessarily identifying with the with the Russian state. I think that it's a language that has been forced upon us and is now something that we're comfortable in because of that and in no way kind of delineates your allegiances to one state or another. And in fact, I mean, in fact, when I'm here in Krakow and I hear someone speaking Russian, like when I hear people speaking Russian, my first assumption is that they're from Ukraine. I mean, it, it's, it's not something that we associate with the Russian state. And to me, it's something that is a part of our history and it's an unfortunate part of our history, but it's there. And so I I think that now more than ever before, we're seeing that this whole concept of Russian-speaking Ukrainians being against Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians and the East versus West divide, I mean that is primarily a myth perpetuated by the Russians to try and justify their control over Eastern Ukraine. And we're seeing more than ever that beyond language, what binds Ukrainians together is not that, but it's our philosophy and our values and our desire for freedom. And you see people, you know, our frontline defenders that are giving their absolute most to defend our country are speaking amongst themselves in Russian. And that tells you everything you need to know about whether Russian speaking Ukrainians have any sort of allegiances.
0: So you see the Russian language not as a cultural or political identification, but as just kind of a lingua franca uh, of the region and as a residue of Russian colonialism, and it no more suggests uh, cultural or or political allegiance to the Russian state than, say the fact that québécois uh, Canadians speak French. Uh, suggests, uh, or or for that matter, Anglo-Canadians speak English, suggests allegiance to either France or the UK uh, on the part of Canadians?
2: So I, I would say yes, but with the caveat that I, I do think that the Ukrainian language being the primary language of communication and being the primary language of the country is something incredibly important. And so while I I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, if you are a Russian-speaking Ukrainian, you have allegiances to the Russian states and it's a political choice or anything like that at that time, because I I want to be understanding that a lot of Ukrainians, due to Russian colonialism, have not had the opportunity to learn the Ukrainian language and to be as fluent in it as someone from Lviv might be. And so, of course, it's something that you have to be understanding for. At the same time, though, saying that with that in mind, I do think that, That Russian-speaking Ukrainians ought to kind of consider the connotations of using the Ukrainian language. And I think that moving forward, it's going to be incredibly important for our nation to have Ukrainian be the once and for all the language of our nation. Which is why, for me personally, a few years ago, I made the choice to switch over to Ukrainian and start learning Ukrainian, even though I consider myself a strong Ukrainian nationalist Being a Russian speaker, I did think that it was incredibly important for the future of our nation and for the political context to speak Ukrainian. So I do still think that it's important for people to make the switch because it's going to be it's going to be a pillar of our nation building moving forward to have our own language and to separate and sever all ties that we may have with Russia, though. Of course, this is a process that is going to take a few generations to really filter out all of the linguistic imperialism that we we faced. But as it stands, no, I mean, a lot of my friends and I communicate amongst ourselves in Russian, though a lot of us are trying to make the switch and it still exists. I mean, families, especially older generations are still primarily Russian speaking and will still put their lives on the line for Ukraine. So I do think that I think that people outside of ukraine and especially people in russia politicize the ukrainian language issue a lot more than ukrainians themselves actually do i mean in my experience i've been able to talk to people and i'm doing work in government and doing important work on the cultural front and we've been able to communicate in russian and we've not had any kind of judgments uh, passed upon that i think that it's more politicized outside of ukraine than inside
0: so talk to me about the activities of the Shadows Project. You described setting it up, but as a uh, as a day-to-day matter, what does it do?
2: <sighs> day-to-day can look very, very different. Our primary platform right now is our Instagram, where we put out posts that try and shed light on different aspects of the ukrainian experience whether that's cultural historical political and especially parts of ukrainian culture that people have not had access to before because of repressions so
0: and where where can people find it on instagram
2: shadows dot project on instagram and so We have a team of 16 people that work with us, and essentially we're a community of Ukrainians that is trying to bring all of these things to light and bring these stories in an accessible way. So what we do usually is, you know, we sit down with our team and we think, okay, what is an aspect of our culture or what is something interesting that we found during our research that we think not a lot of Ukrainians know About their culture. So, for example, a lot of the things we've done has been finding artists that have Ukrainian roots that is not very well known and kind of bringing that to light and doing posts describing their Ukrainian identity or searching through archives and searching through history books to find anecdotes about different Ukrainian experiences that people might not have known about for example stories of ukrainian dissidents or even stories of famous ukrainian buildings that had been burned by the kgb that you might not know about because they don't exist anymore and so we kind of try and dig all of that up and bring our history to light in a very interactive and accessible way on our instagram though Recently, we've been expanding to try and maximize our impact because our philosophy is that in order for a culture and its history to live on, it has to be ingrained in your day-to-day life. And so you really have to live it in order to carry it along with you, which is why we try to do as many things as possible that can make this a lived experience for us. And since the war started, one of the most important initiatives that we've been doing has been um, working with the museums in Ukraine to provide them protective equipment because While we like to protect our historical and cultural heritage online, it's now under physical direct attack as well for the first time in 30 years. And so it's very important to protect our physical cultural heritage that serves as living proof and living representation of what Ukraine is. So... Right after the war started, we reached out to a lot of these Ukrainian museums that we had already been in contact with just through previous work at Shadows and asked them what the situation was like on the museum front. And it was dire. They did not have the funding and the equipment and the assistance that they needed. And so we realized that this is kind of the new calling to the Shadows mission during wartime is protecting the physical culture. And so... We set up an initiative to help get protective equipment to the museums. We managed to raise over $27,000 as of now, though recently, really excitingly, we got in contact with a bunch of museums on the East Coast that are going to be donating more equipment. So that's going to be coming in soon. And that's what I've been doing here because I've been going back and forth. I travel with the equipment. I bring it in. I make sure that it's set up in the museums and they show me around and show me what they're doing to protect all of the art and that's kind of how the mission of the Shadows Project has shifted since the war began and what we've been up to.
0: All right, so let's uh, let's unpack that. First of all,
2: mm-hmm.
0: what kind of equipment does a museum need to protect stuff in the event of, you know, rocket attacks? I mean, some of the cities have been completely destroyed. What sort of equipment saves what sort of cultural uh, heritage in the face of that kind of onslaught.
2: Unfortunately, at the end of the day, as much as we can do to minimize the damage, if a rocket hits a museum, that work is going up in flames and there's nothing much we can do about it. And so that is the unfortunate reality that this is all trying to minimize the damage, but really At the end of the day, you can't really 100% guarantee the protection to these artifacts unless you evacuate them, which is increasingly difficult. But what we are trying to do to minimize any collateral damage is bring in fireproof armored cabinets and several other kind of protective equipment that you can wrap things in a lot of bubble wrap, a lot of cardboard, a lot of fireproof blankets and fireproof kind of cloths that you can wrap paintings in and things like that. And the armored cabinets are a big one. So we brought in 13 large armored cabinets for people to lock things in and they're fireproof. So hypothetically, if the building goes up in flames, those armored cabinets should stay safe. And um, we've also been bringing in a lot of electricity generators because you can't really just Take art off the walls and put it in a bunker because in order to really preserve the art, I mean, some of these documents would just dissipate into dust if they even saw a speck of light. And so you really have to make sure that the temperature controls are correct, the humidity controls and all of these things. And so electricity generators are really important to keep the conditions safe and so the art doesn't deteriorate um so we've been bringing that in and cabinets and all kinds of other kind of secondary cardboard bubble wrap tape anything that you can kind of wrap things in
0: so i understand pretty intuitively how you get stuff to lviv how you get stuff to kyiv or even to odessa but it seems like a much more difficult and dangerous project if you're talking about kharkiv or, or much less if you're talking about Mariupol. So what is the range of museums and the geographic range of of institutions that you're dealing with here? And how, as a realistic matter, how confined are you to the, uh, the Western part of the country?
2: As of now, we're pretty confined um, to the Western part of the country, just because people aren't even able to get humanitarian aid into some of these cities. It's going to be much harder to just get, you know, museum aid in. And the museums we've been working with so far have been in Lviv, in Kiev and Odessa. And so we have been working with those major cities and trying to get stuff through them. And we haven't had any problems getting into the West so far. It's been very smooth riding. But as we get more and more museums involved and get more funds we're obviously going to be looking to other hotspots because those are the priorities right now. Though I don't know, to be honest, how realistic that's going to be. And I have no idea how we're going to execute that. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that we've been seeing coming out of the occupied territories is that the Russian occupants are actually removing the art from the museums and evacuating it towards Russia. So something that we saw earlier this week was that thousands of artifacts from the museum in mariupol had been evacuated into occupied territory
0: evacuated is a very generous word for <laughs> stolen
2: <laughs> stolen yeah <laughs> yeah and so they were they were stolen um by the russian occupants and taken into occupied territory of donetsk and i don't know where they went from there but it just goes to show again that this this is something that The Russians are thinking about, and a lot of people ask me, you know, why, why should you care about museums and why should you care about culture? And I said, well, because they do. And so if they care about it, then that's something that we need to care about as well. If they care about it enough that in occupied Mariupol, they're going to spend time and energy and resources, stealing thousands of artifacts. That means that it's important enough for us to care to protect it. And so, yeah, I have no idea how we're going to get to those hotspots, but hopefully we'll find a way.
0: And just to be clear, I mean, you're, this may be a, a, a more of a question for the Anne Applebaum's and Timothy Snyder's of the world, but why does Vladimir Putin care about stealing Ukrainian cultural artifacts?
2: He cares about stealing Ukrainian cultural artifacts because each cultural artifact that exists in Ukraine that is living proof of our unique our historical our distinct culture is a challenge to the narrative that he's trying to build. I mean, he's trying to build this historical narrative that Ukraine is inseparable from Russia, that we're brotherly nations that, you know, historically we've always walked arm in arm and we have these artifacts in this art that is just proof that that's not true. And each of these artifacts that kind of stands as a reminder of Ukraine's distinct history and Ukraine's distinct culture poses a threat to him. Because when people can go into museums and see, oh, this is an artifact from the Kievan Rus', which was the first Ukrainian civilization, then that is a threat to Putin's narrative that Russia was founded off of the Kievan Rus. When people can go into a museum and see a beautiful painting of the Crimean seaside and say, oh, this is a beautiful painting of the Ukrainian seaside, then that is a threat to Russia's narrative that Crimea is a part of Russia. And in fact, actually, a lot of the paintings that had been stolen from Mariupol were paintings by an artist that uh, lived and painted in Crimea, and a lot of them depicted the Crimean seaside. And so why does he want these paintings of the Ukrainian Sea because he wants to bring that back and tell the Russian people and tell the world that that's his and to put that up in the Hermitage Museum and say this is, you know, Russia's beautiful sea in Crimea and it's erasure and it's it's all it's all about building the narrative and everything that we have on our territory that challenges that is something that he's going to want to destroy.
0: So what are your future plans for this project? Uh, You say you're coming back to Stanford, Uh, the war continues, there's still a lot to do in the project that you've undertaken for Shadows during this period. Uh, What is the the continuity of the project as you return to being a college student?
2: Well, the next time that I'll be back as a student, will be in September. So I still have some time to think about that, but I will be coming back to the U.S. for the summer, and I think that during that time, we'll have already launched our full-scale museum protection initiative that we're actually hoping to launch next week, which will help us a lot um, because right now I've been running it kind of on a one-to-one basis, and it's been a bit more disorganized. It's been a lot more like me trying to organize all of this, but next week we're launching an official website to be able to get a lot more donations and to be able to get a lot more sponsors involved. So hopefully uh, by the time I come back to the U S we'll have a network running of people on the ground that will be able to be helping us with this full time. And we'll be able to launch our websites that a lot of these other institutions that are interested in donating can come and know how to do that directly because we've been working with the, individual donors so the hoover institution at stanford gave me twenty five thousand um, dollars for the initiative and then we've been working with the museum of fine arts in boston as well as hopefully a few other bostonian museums and we're hoping to centralize that by launching our page so that museums from all over the world can help us and we can kind of maximize our impact and hopefully even get um enough Equipment and enough donations to be able to get some of the equipment into the hotspots. And so we're hoping to kind of expand our efforts in that sense. And beyond that, we have a few other things that we've been working on. We have been working on collecting testimonies from Ukrainians, both in Ukraine and that have fled, and hoping to compile that into kind of a little archive and database to be able to tell our stories because. Of course, Shadows Project was based on this foundation of, you know, Ukraine being able to tell its own narrative, and that's more important than ever. So simultaneously, we've been working on collecting testimonies from people in Ukraine going through the war, and hopefully we'll be able to publish that for people to read firsthand experiences of what it's like. And uh, I'll just keep trying to do what I'm doing, and I don't know how I'm going to juggle that with school, but that's a problem for September.
0: (laughs) So where will this website be by the time people hear this it will probably have launched so where can people find Shadows Project work other than the Instagram account
2: So the website is saveua.art and so you know saveua.art um is going to be the place where we're going to have a centralized centralized location for people to get involved with protecting our museums. And that should be launching by the time that this podcast is out. So that'll be exciting. And people will be able to go on there and help us like sponsor a museum and get some uh, donations and equipment to them on a one-to-one
0: basis. And what about the testimony component? What, What will the scope of that be?
2: So we've already been posting testimonies on a separate Instagram that we made called Letters from Ukraine. So that's just Letters from Ukraine on Instagram. And we already have dozens of testimonies that are up and we're just continuing to compile them. For Ukrainians, there is a Google form in the bio where you can fill out your testimony. For others, you can just come and scroll through. We translate everything to English so that foreigners can read the testimonies and Um, We're still working on developing a proper archive for that, but because we've been getting so many, we just wanted to put these out um, as soon as possible. So for now, we've been posting them on Letters from Ukraine on Instagram.
0: So bringing it all together, what's the unifying theme of this work? Is it fundamentally about cultural preservation? Is it fundamentally about creating a Ukrainian narrative of Ukraine's own history? Is it fundamentally a nationalist exercise? If you had to explain what the unifying theme of all of your work is, what is it?
2: It's nation building. That is what we're trying to do here. And that's what we've been trying to do for the past year and a half. And that's really realistically what we've been trying to do for the past 30 years of our independence. I mean, we're seeing really through our work at shadows firsthand and experiment in 21st century nation building and what that means, because Ukraine finally got the opportunity to have its own voice, have its own country and have control over its narrative. Um, in 1991, after centuries of repressions. And that posed this question of, okay, now that you have full control, what is Ukraine? And what does that mean? And for us growing up as the first independent generation, that question falls upon us. And so that's really what me and my team and my friends are trying to do at Shadows is this experiment in building a nation in 2022, I guess, now, and understanding What a nation is composed of, whether that means the language you speak or whether that means your cultural figures or the art you have or the music you put out or the values that you stand for and how you can build a nation in the face of so many challenges. How can you build a nation in the face of, you know, repressions of your identity? How can you build a nation in the face of erasure? How can you build a nation in the face of multilingualism and multi-ethnic groups and how can you build a nation that survives and thrives and is unified and for us that's what we're trying to do and our answer to that is historical memory our answer to that at shadows and what we want to do at shadows is create a cultural continuity that people can buy into and that people can understand ukraine through. So Ukraine through its culture, Ukraine through its stories, and build a nation through shared stories, shared experiences, and through learning our history together and kind of deciding what that means. And so it's cool. Something that makes it cool is that, of course, being Gen Z and doing this in 2022 means that a lot of this is being done digitally and through really interesting multimedia approaches. And it's not nation building in a traditional sense. I mean, people would think that You know, nation building means writing books and having discussions in parliaments and laws. But really, you know, it can be about a meme that you share and the meme tells you about a famous author that you never knew was Ukrainian. And now you're like, oh, this is an author of ours. And you share that with your friends and it becomes something you internalize. And that is kind of our experiment in nation building and trying to ensure that the Ukrainian youth has something that they can subscribe to.
0: We are going to leave it there. Katarina Bukatsky, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I recorded it myself. You, however, can do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the social media. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, whom I just picked up near Dulles Airport and with whom I'm going to have dinner this evening. And as always, thanks for listening.